0: Tonight, for our 170th episode, we revisit the 70s thriller, Taxi Driver, from 1976, which was our 14th episode on the show. If any of you wants to go back and listen to the original episode, which was released originally on May twenty second, 2020. Directed by Martin Scorsese, written by Paul Schrader, score by Bernard Herrmann, who died shortly after finishing the film, starring Robert De Niro as Travis Bickle, Jodie Foster as Iris Steensma, Sybil Shepard as Betsy, Harvey Keitel as Matthew Sport-Higgins, Albert Brooks as Tom, Leonard Harris as Senator Charles Palantine, Peter Boyle as Wizard, Stephen Prince as Easy Andy, the gun salesman, Martin Scorsese as Passenger Watching Silhouette, Slash Man Outside Palantine Headquarters, and Joe Spinell as the Personnel Officer. Recognition for this movie, Taxi Driver was released on February 9th, 1976. On a budget of roughly $1.9 million, Taxi Driver would go on to gross $28.6 million overall and would place number 15 at the American box office for 1976. Taxi Driver would garner a lot of critical praise at the time and would go on to be nominated for Best Picture, Actor for Robert De Niro, Supporting Actors for Jodie Foster, and Score for Bernard Herrmann, although posthumously. Taxi Driver has received honors from the AFI for the following lists. AFI's 100 Years, 100 Heroes and Villains, for the number 30 villain, Travis Bickle. AFI's 100 Years, 100 Movie Quotes, number 10, You Talking to Me. AFI's 100 Years, 100 Thrills, at number 22. AFI's 100 Years, 100 Movies, at number 47. And AFI's 100 Years, 100 Movies, 10th Anniversary Edition, at number 52. The Village Voice ranked Taxi Driver at number 33 in its top 250 Best Films of the Century list in 1999, based on a poll of critics. Empire also ranked De Niro 18th in its 100 Greatest Movie Characters poll. And the film ranks at number 17 on the magazine's 2008 list of the 500 Greatest Movies of All Time. Time Out Magazine conducted a poll of the 100 Greatest Movies set in New York City. Taxi Driver topped the list, placing it at number 1. Schrader's screenplay for the film was ranked the 43rd greatest ever written by the Writers Guild of America. In 2012, in a Sight and Sound poll, Iranian filmmaker Asghar Farhadi selected Taxi Driver as one of his 10 best films of all time. Quentin Tarantino also listed the movie among his 10 greatest films of all time. It was inducted in 1994 in the National Film Registry. The film was chosen by Time as one of its 100 best films of all time. In 2015, Taxi Driver ranked 19th on the BBC's 100 Greatest American Films list, voted on by film critics from around the world, and Taxi Driver currently holds a 96% on Rotten Tomatoes, a 94% on Metacritic, and a 4.2 out of 5 on Letterboxd. So we will start as we do every week. Dad, what is your relationship to this movie?
1: Well, I think this is either the third or fourth time I've watched the film through from beginning to end. It was one that I'd seen parts of for a long time. I think it finally sat through the entire thing again with you before we started the show.
0: Then when we did the show and now again, this is only my second time through. I think if I remember correctly, the only other time and I'd seen images or still photographs of the movie, but it was one that I put early on the list because it was one that I needed somewhat of an excuse, given its subject material, to watch. And so the show pushed me into watching it for the first time. I've often also said that usually the second time through is when I really start to appreciate certain movies. I think that I could get a respect for the movie on the first viewing. I started to enjoy the movie the second time around.
1: I think the first time I watched it, it was kind of like making its way through like HBO and such like that. In the uh, mid-80s because of the um, John Hinckley, uh, Ronald Reagan assassination in the link to the movie. So it had a
0: new interest that uh, caused it to be released. Well, if it's the mid-80s, you're probably talking about uh, in coinciding with the trial. Probably. Which I'm sure we're going to get to in Impact and Significance as it's one of the big outside stories about the movie. So... We answered this question originally on the first program, but how would you state what the movie is about now? It's about someone descending into madness. I guess that's the simplest way of putting it. I don't know if I have anything more elevated to really add to that. It is a character study of a lonely person. In our current age, I would dare say, a quote-unquote incel, and what eventually become the consequences of his loneliness, his outbursts of violence.
1: I don't say this lightly, but I mean, this is a situation where he goes in and and shoots up a brothel and kills all the people associated with uh, underage sex trafficking versus what we're seeing now which is shooting mass shootings in a school or a mall or a church. I I think that part of it is what troubles me is just
0: how much this has become reality. Well, do you draw an extra empathy for characters such as these from this movie cuz I found myself strangely doing so. I don't think that I would have any sympathy or empathy for people when I see them on the news currently of this ilk, those that are violent and their repercussions and the rest of it. I have a hard time understanding them. Maybe where this movie is great is giving us an avenue or insight into this persona or this personality.
1: I think it gives us an insight into it, but I wouldn't say he's empathetic. You know, he takes a he, he gets a date, and he takes her to an adult theater and doesn't think anything of it. That part just floors me yet is how he could perceive that as being acceptable.
0: Well, I have some stuff in the did-you-know section as to what that's supposed to represent, according to Paul Schrader. Okay. So I don't want to, like, preempt myself a little bit too much, but essentially... I think, if I remember correctly on my research, it's a protection mechanism for people that are lonely. It's somewhat of a personality defect that when somebody actually does start to get closer, they find a way, if not subconsciously, to push them away. And so that could be that representation.
1: Yeah. I know that happens. Well, it's the philosophy of I'm going to hurt them before they hurt me.
0: Sure. I could buy that. I mean...
1: Yeah, it's not necessarily a conscious thought. There's a subconscious reality in some people that do that or that triggers that type of response.
0: Sure. So what has changed for you about this movie since we did it the first time?
1: I think the, the, the first time I saw it, it was so raw, and the shock value was so much. Um, just the violence and how quickly he degenerates into this uh, violent, scary person. it Just the shock value of it, I think, took me aback, and I had a hard time watching it as in the third person and just kind of looking at it. It drew too much emotionally out of me the first time. This time it was less because I knew what to expect and I could watch it more for the filmmaking aspect of it, the overall direction, the story itself. Not that I became desensitized to the situation, because it still bothered me, but it
0: wasn't quite as shocking. As I alluded to before, I would say that my enjoyment of the movie actually went up because I could start to see all the little technical flourishes, And the signature either acting by De Niro or Scorsese's directing or Bernard Herrmann's score. And so I could pick them out a little bit more because I didn't have to focus nearly as much on the story as I would normally. So that was something that made this much more rewatchable for me. As opposed to the first time that we reviewed this, I said that this was going to be a tough rewatch. And it really wasn't that much for me. The length may be a little bit longer, but given the length of some of Scorsese's other movies, this is actually pretty moderate. And it's not four hours. Exactly. It's not even two and a half or nearly three like Goodfellas. I guess the other thing that jumped out to me is I think I respected the linkages between Travis and what we've gotten a lot with these lone wolf terrorists domestic terrorists, I can still hold some level of objectivity as to the consequences of their actions and what they've done, but there is a certain level of empathy that I developed over the course of the film seeing De Niro deteriorate. And maybe that's just because I think this is De Niro's best performance, and he's fantastic in the movie, but it might also just be a combination of Schrader's writing, De Niro's acting and Scorsese's direction, along with some great scoring. I don't know. I I appreciate and enjoyed the movie even more the second time. Could it be, dare
1: I say, some level of understanding of these people and the culture behind them because you've been spending more time working in my office?
0: Are you saying that being an attorney in your office is a very lonely existence?
1: No, I'm saying, though, that we have... Well, it is, but I we have uh, we deal with people from mental illness points of view on a regular basis, and you learn a lot of the intricacies of what makes them. Let's put it this way. A lot of people who have mental illness when you start reading their medical records and understanding the cause or some of the circumstances that led to this, Uh, as far as childhood upbringing, uh, situations, traumas, you develop some empathy for mental illness in general because, let's just face facts, there's a lot of fucked up people and they have a tendency to fuck up other people and make it permeate for
0: generations. And that's fair. I wouldn't necessarily say it's a byproduct of working in your office, but it is helpful this time around given that I, I've worked in the family business for almost 16 years now in some capacity, but I think I've developed a different sense of self and relatability, dare I say a vulnerability about me that has only been apparent for maybe the last four to five years. It's a slow evolution, but I, I think I'm just a different person. Yeah, called growth and, uh, you know, so yes. Which I I would hope that we all strive for <laughs> Maybe not to understanding uh, everybody. There there are parts yeah. of this that I, I certainly don't understand the thinking. Although I can understand that it's probably not coming from a rational place.
1: Well, I know several people
0: in my immediate circle who have uh, stunted growth. So, should we give a little bit more background on the movie? Do you have a plot summary ready for us?
1: I do. Taxi Driver is a gritty and haunting exploration of urban alienation and the descent into madness. In the dark underbelly of 1970s New York City, we follow Travis Beckel, Robert De Niro, a Vietnam War veteran turned insomniac taxi driver. Haunted by his own demons and repulsed by the moral decay around him, Travis becomes a vigilante on a dangerous path to redemption as he navigates through a city teeming with pimps, prostitutes, and corrupt politicians. His isolation intensifies, leading him into a shocking and violent climax. Scorsese's masterful direction, combined with De Niro's mesmerizing performance, creates a character study that both mesmerizes and unsettles, leaving viewers questioning the boundaries between hero and villain, sanity and madness. Taxi Driver remains a searing and prophetic examination of a society on the brink, capturing the dark undercurrents of a troubled era with uncompromising intensity.
0: Thank you. Did you know? Director Martin Scorsese claims that the most important shot in the movie is when Bickle is on the phone trying to get another date with Betsy. The camera moves to the side slowly and pans down the long, empty hallway next to Bickle, as if to suggest that the phone conversation is too painful and pathetic to bear, and this shot also showcases his isolation and loneliness. So you got that one right. Okay, well, thank you. Does that work for you?
1: Sure. I get so few
0: applause anyway, so. Did you know? The climactic shootout was considered intensely graphic by some critics, who even considered giving the film an X rating. The film was booed at the Cannes Film Festival for its graphic violence. To obtain an R rating, Scorsese had the colors desaturated, making the brightly colored blood less prominent. In later interviews, Scorsese commented that he was pleased by the color change and considered it an improvement over the original scene. However, in the special edition DVD, Michael Chapman, the film's cinematographer, expresses regret about the decision and the fact that no print with the unmuted colors exists anymore, as the originals had long since deteriorated. Did you know? Robert De Niro has said that despite having won an Oscar for The Godfather Part Two, he was still a relatively unfamiliar face, and was only recognized once while driving a New York cab during his research for this film. Did you know? Between the time Robert De Niro signed a $35,000 contract to appear in this film, and when it began filming, he won the Oscar for his role in The Godfather Part 2, and his profile soared. The producers were worried that De Niro would ask for a deserved larger pay raise, since Columbia Pictures was very concerned about the project and were looking for excuses to pull the plug on it. But De Niro said he would honor his original deal so the film would get made. Did you know? When Paul Schrader was first writing the script, he believed that he was just writing about loneliness. But as the process went on, he realized he was writing about the pathology of loneliness, his theory being that, for some reason, some young men, such as Schrader himself, subconsciously push away others to maintain their isolation, even though the main source of their torment is this very isolation. And with that, we will take our first break, and we'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode, next week we are finally discussing a franchise I've held back on the show for a long time, but I'm gifting to myself as a birthday present. We start our discussions on the Dark Knight trilogy with Batman Begins from 2005. Written and directed by Christopher Nolan, co written by David Escoyer, score by Hans Zimmer and James Newton Howard, starring Christian Bale, Michael Caine, Liam Neeson, Katie Holmes, Gary Oldman, Killian Murphy, and Morgan Freeman. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the real good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R E E L G O O D. By the way,
1: Isn't this going to be your own uh, birthday trilogy? 33.
0: Oh, yeah, I suppose. I hadn't made that connection there until you spelled it out quite literally. So for those not familiar with our revisit episodes, we are going to skip the middle section of what would normally be a regular episode of ours where you can hear us on best performance, best secondary performance, most charismatic, best scenes, etc., even the best quotes, which is usually in our third section of the show. And we're going to skip ahead right to our Stanley rubric and compare ourselves to what we had before. So originally we started out with Legacy, and we had a 9.25. Did you come up or down since then?
1: Uh, I'm at a 10. I have five for industry, I've or five for public. You don't even have to mention the movie. You just use the line. Are you talking to me? And you ask, "What's that from?" Oh, taxi driver. You can ask. Uh, I'll bet you if you ask ten people on the street randomly, eight of them would know it. Okay. And so, from the public standpoint, and from a legacy standpoint, this launched De Niro and and cemented Scorsese as a as a master uh, filmmaker.
0: And he's had a run of what forty years. Some might argue that Scorsese is the preeminent American director of the last 40 years. I think you and I might argue Steven Spielberg. And De Niro, by extension, being in so many Scorsese films, being the preeminent actor, at least for, you know, maybe a period of 25 years, up until about the early 2000s.
1: Now he's just taking a lot of stuff that he just
0: does because he wants to work, or he likes to work. See, I count this as both De Niro's best performance and Scorsese's best performance. So trying to pick between the two of them, if we were to redo best performance, would be extraordinarily hard. Yeah. I also think it's one of Bernard Herrmann's better scores, but it's really hard to separate his best scores since he did Vertigo, he did Psycho, he did Citizen Kane. I mean, he's got a a pretty good logline of the Rushmore of his own best work. I know, the man who knew too much. It's considerable, but... I was worried that we might be a little high if we went a full 10, but I think I can get there on the industry easily. I'm just concerned maybe that this movie is something that scares a lot of people off. I think it's gotten into the pop culture, but it's not necessarily an accessible movie. For example, we use mom as the average person metric a lot on the show, or even in our own lives. We use her often as our own personal straw poll. Of just the normal person. How many normal people are seeing this film? That was just my concern. I know that it's penetrated in a way that is bigger. And if you want to just say it is overcome by the other amount of Scorsese and De Niro films that people have seen. If you want to say because of the work that they've done together that basically was launched by this film. I might buy that. But I'm just at least expressing a little bit of concern.
1: Yeah, I understand your concern, and I'm going to equate a little bit. It's it's like you talk to people of your grandparents' generation that live in Wisconsin where we do, and, oh, yes, I was at the ice bowl, or my uncle was at the ice bowl, and if everybody who said they were at the ice bowl was actually at the ice bowl, Lambeau Field at the time would have hold 400,000 people. This is a film that people don't necessarily need to watch, but know enough about it that it is permeated culture and it has become a permanent fixture in culture. The lines, what took place, how it took place. I mean, you mentioned Jodie Foster to this day, and I'll say 40% of normal everyday people will know that she played a prostitute in Taxi Driver. And that was her first big movie role.
0: Boy, I'm not sure I would go that far. I think more people would relate her to Clarice Starling.
1: That's going to be a majority. But what I'm saying is is that if you talk to a lot of people, they will immediately remember her from that situation.
0: So if I said name a Scorsese film, how far down the list before you get to this movie? For me? Not you, just the average person. Third? At best, Goodfellas. Yeah. Goodfellas is going to be number one. Departed. Possibly, yes. I think it's got to be in the top five.
1: Easily. The only thing that's going to it back is because this is from 75 is people of the Generation X and below. 76. And they're just going to be, you know, they're not going to be as familiar with it. But they're going to be familiar with the circumstances and
0: what took place. Essentially, what you're doing is making a similar argument to what I did with like Citizen Kane, where I think there are a lot of people that haven't necessarily seen the movie, but know the title. It's penetrated the culture to an extent that if I said taxi driver, Scorsese De Niro, people at least have a reference point.
1: Correct. And that's why I was making the, the thing about the you don't have to actually have been at Lambo. It's you know so much about it. It's as if you were there and that's the situation with taxi driver. You know so much about it. Everybody
0: almost assumes they've seen it even if they haven't. If I said a 9.5 was my original score on this, are you saying you would not settle for less than a 10?
1: I you know, in retrospect, I mean when we were first starting out, it was always I was trying to avoid giving 10s because you know, eventually if you get everybody a 10, how do you differentiate so I think I probably went a little under because of that. But now I'm sitting here and I'm thinking about it. And I'm thinking about the impact and the situation. And I have a very difficult time. And I'm going to say, this is not one of my favorite movies. But I have a very difficult time saying this does not deserve a 10. Because of its impact on the movie industry and on American culture over you know 40 years. It's still prevalent. If you walked up and started talking, hey, are you talking to me? You talking to me? The public is going to immediately know what the hell you're talking about.
0: Yeah, it's like I'm walking here.
1: Yeah. Well, that one's even a little different because
0: I'm walking here. Most people would not be able to tell you the film it was from. Probably not, but at least they know the line. It's another one that's penetrated the culture just generally. I mean, I've had people that I know for sure have no idea where it comes from and have never seen that movie and can't name anybody in it or who said the line, <laughs> but know that line. You mean the ad lib by Dustin Hoffman? Ratso Rizzo, yes. Yes. All right, I'm 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 willing to capitulate on the 10. I'm surprised that I actually was arguing the the sub point on it. Now, impact and significance, this is where I had a 10. I don't think this was a highly seen film. But it was a highly awarded film. And there's no other film that I can think of that directly influenced a presidential assassination attempt within the five years it was out.
1: All right. Well, I went for the industry with a 4.5 because of the fact of how it promoted the principles. I think it launched, obviously, Jodie Foster. It cemented... De Niro, and Scorsese as uh, major players. The problem I have is, is, yes, the public was perceived. It was the 17th grossing film of the year. 15th. I saw 17th, but okay, either way. Um, so this was not something the public just rushed out to see. But we've given pretty good
0: grades on stuff that was below it, like networks.
1: Yeah, I, I understand. And uh, and so to that extent, I'll give a 4.5 for the industry, but I can't go more than a 4 for the public because I don't think it has much impact per se. And simply because one deranged, mentally ill individual attempts to assassinate the president does not mean that's a
0: public
1: impact or significance. So
0: 8.5. Okay. This might be a a strong argument point because it's a much wider difference than the first category. And we spent a while talking about that. (sighs) I mean, this might be one of the great movie years of all time. Network, Rocky, All the President's Men, unassailable, just classics. I know that there are a couple others in this category that also were like high up on the list. And to say that it didn't win over a couple of those other films... I don't really hold against it. I mean, that; those are four absolutely all-time films, especially considering out of 75, we also had five of the best films we ever made. So this is kind of that peak era of Hollywood as far as big production by auteur directors. In some ways, this is the launching point of when people started to take Scorsese and De Niro a little more seriously. Yes, De Niro has a supporting actor under his belt, but this is when you start to see him as a leading man. And it's only four years later that we get Raging Bull from both of these, which wins De Niro Best Actor. Now, as far as in the industry and serious work and stuff that's going to be made, I'd have a hard time going below your 4.5, but I can maybe see the point. An audience standpoint, though, I mean, you talk about the fact that you were dismissed from school because of an assassination attempt.
1: Yeah, but that's not the public. That's one individual.
0: Yes, but it's that one individual because of something else that causes all those sur-effects.
1: So you're going to tell me that if we are going to review Biodome and somebody (laughs) says that Tom Green's performance. Tom Green's not in Bio. Oh, excuse me. Um, uh, damn it. Who's in it? Pauly Shore. Pauly Shore. That Pauly Shore's performance drove me to shoot up a um, a church. You're going to say that that gets a, a higher mark for impact or significance because one person is motivated by Pauly Shore. I mean, I don't think Pauly Shore would be motivated by Polly Shore in a normal situation. I mean, my guess is he sits at home
0: and goes, God, I suck, but I'm making money. He makes a lot more than I do. I know you're just trying to practice reductio ad absurdum, and I know I've just lost half the audience by doing Latin, but... <laughs> stay with yeah. me here, folks. I just think it has to matter, though. Maybe it's not a full five, but... I could capitulate to a nine. All right, nine. I mean, I'm coming down a full point.
1: I, I understand. So that's fine. I'll go up to a point or I'll go up to nine.
0: All right, novelty. We had a 9.5 original. You know, I didn't think I never gave the original score for impact significance. That was a 9.75. So we've actually come down about 0.75 points on this one, even though we basically. Raised it on the legacy score. So we're about even through the first two categories. But novelty. We had a 9.5. I really don't see any reason to go lower than this. Oh, you
1: know, it's a psychological film. And I thought about it. And I'm trying to think of what other psychological films. I mean, we have Psycho, which doesn't show the, the spiral
0: downward, but still is there. It's not told from Norman Bates's perspective. And this is really the original movie of the lone kind of vigilante type. The diary sections, the narration. I mean, it creates an entire archetype and it, almost a subgenre to itself.
1: Okay, well, I, I had 8.5. I'll change it to a 9, but that's where I am. Because I think this is not isolation or alone. I think there are psychological films that uh, exist that challenge that this is not
0: completely original. But I'm not even saying so much as the originality, but I'm also saying how many other films have borrowed from and reused this type of mentality or have made allusions to this. I mean, there's a reason that Bill Hader often cites this movie when talking about Barry. Yeah, okay. I think it has a larger film influence on the culture at large. And I mean, I'm not even arguing for a 10. I don't think it's the most novel film I've ever seen. But this is pretty close. I mean, it's it's up there. If you need me to, I can at least give you some other examples of stuff from oh, that would be tying it.
1: You've conceded already on a couple, so I guess I'll go with your 9.5 reluctantly, but I will. Okay because I have a feeling we're going to stumble on the next
0: one. On classicness? Yes. All right, so the original classicness score was an 8.5. The differentiation is going to be whether you think this serves a public good or not. Okay, here's my problem with classicness. We have had so much in the
1: public discourse about sex trafficking, minors, underage... Relations, Jeffrey Epstein, etc. I don't think you can put a 12 year old female in that role and get it to pass without giving it an X rating, regardless of the violence. I just can't believe that. And so I think now you would be talking about maybe a 17 year old who's vulnerable or an 18 year old who's vulnerable. You would have the same effect, but you could never get away with doing a 12-year-old, especially that's diminutive and vulnerable. And to that extent, it comes across more creepy than probably did in 1975. You have to understand that when I grew up in that age and the uh, sexual assault laws were not nearly as stringent as they are for for underage girls, especially, so I think the culture has changed, and the because we've come to realize, you know, I think I read that the that they had to, you know, that they ended up doing like psychological testing of Jodie Foster uh, to find out if this was going to have any long-term detrimental effect on her for even being in it, knowing that it's fake, let alone living through it. So I have to give it points down for classicness, so I can't go above a 7.5 because of
0: that particular
1: situation.
0: Okay, it's a little higher than I thought you might go. So you're still above the baseline. My point is is not so much in that, and I understand the classicness points. And to a degree, it kind of cancels itself out. I wasn't going to go a 10. You are correct that they had to give her in advance psychological testing and a few other hurdles to pass California law at the time so that she could be a part of the movie. My only point on this is is that, yes, it has some bad moments. Is it that far off of real life? And by what extension, what I'm kind of talking about, the guy at Pizzagate that shot up the pizza parlor was supposedly looking for a sex trafficking ring. What's classic about the movie is, in a way... It's prophetic about the world we live in now and gives us a maybe a little bit better understanding of these people, even through an artistic and fictional means, and was only giving us kind of the precursor. I mean, I know it's disturbing. This is not necessarily a movie that you watch with the same type of reaction and fervor that you do. Oh, what's a real good feel-good movie? Pretty Woman, even you know that that has a much more neat and tidy happy ending uh the fairy tale as mom put it on that episode yes i had a 9 i could adjust to an 8 i i could right. i could adjust I'll go to up an eight. to an 8 but i mean i yeah i mean <laughs> i know i don't want to make you go much further than that cuz i understand
1: okay and and people ask this and and as a former criminal defense attorney and i can only talk about criminal laws of Wisconsin. But murder is obviously the most heinous crime in Wisconsin. What's second? Multiple assaults of the same victim of a child
0: under the age of 16. That's the second highest level of crime in the state. Well, and isn't it often talked about that the worst thing that you can be as far as you could cheat anybody, you could commit fraud the worst thing you could possibly be is a child sex offender in prison? Yes, because
1: uh, a child sex offender has to be isolated for their own safety because otherwise they will be killed. And it'll be a source of pride the the perpetrators in prison. And the other prisoners will hold them in higher esteem.
0: That's just fact of life. All right. So let's move off of classicness. Right now, as it sits... We have slight adjustments and I think the average is down a half a point. I know that with audience score, we'll be adjusting that just slightly because we didn't on the original episode have the Google numbers to add on to. So we have rewatchability. I think this is going to be the largest range where it might be more difficult. I think this is an important film. I think this is a film because of the flourishes and the technical brilliance of everybody involved and So many great people working at their highest level all at the same time that I have to give this a little bit higher nod despite its subject material. For an hour and 45 minutes of the film, I don't think this is all that difficult to watch. It's the final 15 minutes that really sets you on a different path. And by that extension, I'll go a seven here. We originally had a four, I will understand wherever you come down. We'll discuss it after. We talked about dividing this or starting to
1: divide it between will we openly go and watch it versus will we watch it if we find it just in the middle? Okay. Correct. There will be situations like, quite frankly, being in the situation that we're in and we have friends and people that we're associated with, there are times when they'll ask us about a film This is a film that if somebody is over and we want to watch a film, I may put it on because I think it's important for somebody to watch it. Okay, so if you're going to look at it that way, I'm going to go with a 2.5 for initiating it. In the middle, because there's so much involved here and so much you can glean out of the movie as you're watching it, I'm going to go a little higher with that. I'm going to go with a 4 because I can see myself sitting and watching this for a while if I catch it on in the middle. That being the
0: case... um, So your 6.5 is a half point different than mine. Yep. I don't know if I really want to argue the half point difference all that much, so I'm going to offer split the difference.
1: Okay, I can go with that.
0: I'm a little bit surprised that you didn't go lower, and yet I'm not.
1: No, I... You know, I've I like I said, part of this, part of life is, and I maybe I'm just odd, but I am going the opposite. I was always told that as a young person, you want to be open and experience, and you like different stuff. And as you age, you get narrower and narrower and narrower in what you like and what you don't, and become more set in your ways. I'm going the opposite direction, which is a lot of stuff that I dismissed, music theater, television, movies, I'm finding a new appreciation for things that do not necessarily fall within the stuff that I envisioned appreciating or liking 20 years ago. Because I know how difficult this stuff is. And I have an appreciation for people who can do things better than me. And so I as a film and as a product of Scorsese's work, I have a new appreciation for this. It's still not one of my favorites, but I can look at this and go, this is a piece of art. And so I can have a new appreciation and give it higher marks, even though it's not necessarily in my personal wheelhouse.
0: That leads us to audience score. We had originally a 93 just for the Rotten Tomatoes score. We add in an 89 for the Google users for a 9.1. So the original score on Legacy was a 9.25. We've adjusted that to a 10. Impact Significance, the original score was a 9.75. We've adjusted that down to a 9. Novelty, we stayed the same at 9.5. Original Classicness score was an 8.5. We've adjusted down to a 8. Rewatchability, we've come up from the 4 that originally was to a 6.75. And we've gone 0.2 down on the audience score. From 9.3 to 9.1, giving us a final total of 52.35, which raises it almost two plus points. It's uh, gone from a 50.3 to a 52.35, so 1.05 up. Currently, if you were to look at our list, Taxi Driver is listed as number 47. Any guess on where it is? ends up 23 that's not too far off it is tied for 18th with good wow. faults <laughs> okay that All seems right. fitting yeah we've now revisited those both this year i think there's in most people's estimation there's there is two best movies for them to be side by side seems about right
1: Well, if Marty is ever listening to this show and you have something you would like a bone to pick with us, feel free to contact the show and we'll be glad to let you uh, appear and discuss your film or your films in
0: general. I think he might have a bigger problem with any of the superhero scores we give.
1: You don't have to go there with me because I'm not going to that level. They don't get big scores with me. That's one area that I... Cannot continue or have not been able to reach a level of appreciation. Although, I'm going to have three weeks of Batman. I will take a look and see if I can understand and feel the same appreciation. I like the the craftsmanship of Christopher Nolan. I will try to be fair.
0: Well, not only do we have three Batman coming up the next three weeks but we're doing Richard Donner's Superman in August, and next year we're doing Tim Burton's Batman.
1: Uh, well, don't you have to... Or Was it Tim Burton who did the... Or was that Joel Schumacher? It's Joel
0: Schumacher. It was the fourth film. Okay. By the way, in huge spoilers for everybody so that we don't get accused of some bad things, but apparently George Clooney came back in the Flash movie.
1: <laughs> okay. Really?
0: Yes, really. In the last scene. <laughs> Is he trying to resurrect his Batman career? I would dare say not. In fact, it's in fact it's a franchise and a movie that he has actively spoken out against ever being a part of. So I am shocked that he was a part of this.
1: Is it like Ralph Bellamy and Don Amici doing a cameo as Bums in... Um... Coming to America because they were the rich guys in trading
0: places, possibly. I don't remember them being in Coming to America, but I wasn't really looking yeah, for they, it.
1: Yes, they do a cameo in Coming to America as kind of a tongue in cheek to uh, Eddie Murphy's second big film because they come back as bums. Sit, you know, because in other words, they—that's uh, what ultimately ended up having to them,
0: to the Dukes. So for anyone else that is not named Martin Scorsese, if you have a opinion to share about our scores and anything we've discussed up to this point, you can either email us at greatestalltimemoviepodcast at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, or TikTok at gmotepodcast. We will take our second break here and we'll be right back. Before we jump back into the episode... Releasing in the early part of this July, Adam Hitchcock of the Streaming Circuit Podcast and I are back with our special series on the Marvel Cinematic Universe, where we will be discussing each film from the original Iron Man up through Avengers Endgame. The first half of each show will be on his feed, and the second half we will apply the Stan Lee rubric to each film to determine the greatest Marvel film of all time. This month we're covering the Phase 1 bridge film, Iron Man 2 from 2010. Don't miss out. Make sure you are subscribed to both feeds to get these episodes. Dad, do we have anyone to remember this week? Yes. David
1: Borman, 69, American Television Executive, was formerly with ABC News, CNN, and Current TV. Frederick Forrest, 86, American Actor, The Rose, The Conversation, and Apocalypse Now. Nicholas Coaster, 89, American or British American Actor, was in uh, two different uh, soap operas, Santa Barbara and Another World. It was also in the or movie, The All the President's Men. He played the part of the lawyer uh, sitting in the bat, or in the gallery watching the arraignment that Robert Redford's trying to ask questions to. If you remember the movie, and then Sheldon Harnick, ninety nine American lyricist, did the play Fiorello? Fiddler on the Roof, and She Loves Me, and was also a songwriter. Very instrumental in portraying and conveying American Jewish life or situation in America
0: through story and book. And so we recognize these here for their contributions to the arts, television, acting, etc., with a moment of silence here in their honor. Thank you. So we're going to revisit the remaining questions we had from the original episode. I just pulled them directly because I think the ending of the film is what bothers me the most. Now, Scorsese and Paul Schrader have gone on record saying that it was not a dream sequence. So the original remaining question, was it a dream sequence? Seems to be no. So if that was actual events and real life, how the hell does Travis get out of all of that trouble? I can't imagine that he. Okay, go ahead. That he isn't at least tried for some level of murder. None of the people who died were at all
1: lacking in culpability. I mean, this is a time when America was looking for heroes, and we have a Vietnam vet who goes in and kills a bunch of sex traffickers. To save a uh, 12-year-old prostitute. And even though there's some suspect issues there, that'll all be brushed aside, cleaned up. The police reports will never show exactly what took place, how it happened. This is the way of the world. To some extent, it was more prevalent in the 1970s and 80s. No. No. He wasn't going to face any problems. There was not going to be any ramifications. He was going to be upheld. He would be on television. He would
0: be in the newspapers. He is a hero. If that's true, and I still, I have a hard time buying that, is that promulgating this vigilantism? What it's
1: promulgating is, is that people will look at a situation or story, set of facts They'll buy 50, 60, 70% of it and call it good. And that's how we have certain individuals who clearly violate laws, clearly are immoral, and still have huge
0: followings in this country. There are two other things as far as him and his survival. He gets shot in the neck. Yeah. Okay, unless it's just a grazing wound, at which point he wouldn't be spurting blood out of it. How the hell does he survive that? As long as it doesn't hit a carotid artery, he's fine. All right. I mean, if you're a medical personnel, I just, I'd like to have a good explanation of how that scene works out and he doesn't die.
1: My guess is, is that it didn't hit a carotid artery, so he's lucky. Second thing is is that Paramedics or uh, were on the scene immediately. He and the one thing I couldn't understand is how he did not have a tracheotomy because the trauma to the neck would have caused swelling and his breathing to have swollen shut. So he was going to have to have a trache in order to function uh, and breathe. And but I didn't see any sign that a tracheotomy had been performed. So that's the one flaw I saw in the movie because. They should have had a scar on his neck for a trait. So, again, if Marty is out there, I would love to hear his take on whether or
0: not he thought about putting a scar on Travis's neck for a tracheotomy. And then what does Travis see in the last image of the movie? Obviously, we get the slow-rolling taxi forward, but he looks back in the rearview mirror and seems almost stunned. Like, does a double take.
1: Because why... Because she is a political operative. And as having been somebody involved in politics, as I have, there are certain people that are just latchers on because they're just trying to self-promote themselves. So if he is really the big hero, of course she's going to find him more attractive. She's going to try to milk his celebrity for
0: all she can. So it's her that he sees in the final image?
1: Yes, I believe that is. She's now finding him interesting because he can provide something for her that she did not have. But she had gotten out of the car. Okay.
0: I'm just telling you, that's where I came away with looking at this. I thought it was more metaphorical. Travis is always looking over his shoulder.
1: That might be, but quite frankly, I think that's, or the real metaphorical thing is, is that no matter what, any rela- any relationship Travis has is going to be
0: superficial. Most likely. Final thoughts for the week. I
1: have two, actually. First off, I saw the movie No Hard Feelings with Jennifer uh, Lawrence last night. I enjoyed it tremendously. It's well worth your time and money to go see. It's funny. It's well done. It is endearing and uh, has a quality aspect. Now, Admittedly, admittedly, um, Kyle Mooney is in it, who always annoys me <laughs> and has always annoyed me since his days on Saturday Night Live. So, in fact, if Kyle Mooney is listening and he wants to talk about the fact that I find him annoying, I'll be glad to talk to him about it and tell him why I find him annoying. But he was annoying in that show and that movie as well. The other is, is I'm going to send out a big happy birthday to one Melvin Kaminsky, Mel Brooks. Ah. Mel turns 97 today, and he is a national treasure. He has had more influence, I think, on comedy and American life than uh, most people realize. I I found out because I'm reading a biography of him right now. I'm hopefully going to finish it after we're done recording. Um, But I learned that the show he helped write with Sid Caesar called The Admiral Hour with Sid Caesar was so popular, Admiral went from producing or selling 100 televisions a week to 1,000 televisions a day. And they had to stop endorsing or providing or sponsorship of the show because they had to use the money to build a factory. And the factory they built was in Harvard, Illinois, and that's where my parents worked when I was born. And my mother continued to work there. My dad stopped in 1966, got a different job. But so in some capacity, Mel Brooks has had direct influence on my life, not to mention the fact that I treasure his humor, his skill, his movies, and so much about him that I find appealing. So happy birthday, Mel. And Mel, if you are listening, I have extended out the invitation multiple times on Twitter to come on the podcast because that would be like, I I, I would like, okay, I've, I've reached the pinnacle of my life that I get to have Mel Brooks talk to me on a podcast.
0: I would have to find a new co-host because there wouldn't be anything better for you. Yes. So I'll give two quick recommendations on stuff this week. One is a slightly older show that I got into recently because of the suggestions of some friends of mine. It's a two year old Apple TV series that's going to be having its second season coming up, which is part of the reason that I tried to catch it when I did called the After Party which the premise of it is is there's a murder at a high school reunion after party and Dave Franco's character is killed. Don't worry. This isn't a big spoiler. It's like in the first 30 seconds of the show. But it's an eight episode. Most episodes are about a half an hour, maybe 35 minutes. I think the first one's a little bit longer, closer to like 50 minutes. But each perspective and story told by an individual character in the show corresponds to a certain genre of film. So there's horror, there's romantic comedy, there's action film. To a certain extent, there's cop drama, etc. And so it's a fun show, especially if you liked like Knives Out or Glass Onion. It's kind of in that style. It's somewhat funny. It's humorous, but it's got that mystery puzzle box element to the show. So it's one if you have Apple TV to potentially pick up on. The other one I'm going to mention, I don't know if I even have to mention, but for anybody that likes prestige television that is suffering at the loss of Barry, Succession, the Marvelous Mrs. Maisel, whatever it is that your show just ended, The Bear might be the new best show on television. It has already set the record for Hulu over the weekend of most bingeable hours in a single weekend. And that's because its entire second season, like its first season, dropped all at once. So while it's doing it in, in installments, I think on FX, in the regular cable channel. It's entire episode log is available to binge on Hulu right now. And the first season was great. I think the second season is even better. And it's probably one of the best character written shows that we have right now. So that's my high praise and recommendation. I loved where we went with several of the characters and several of the the biggest episodes in season two. I look forward to hopefully that they're going to basically do one of these every year, but we'll see. It's basically a cooking show, but that's much more character-driven. So it's it's got prestige, but it's got some other stuff for you, too, and it might just make you hungry.
1: By the way, um, having attended my 40-year class reunion, unfortunately, most of the people that I would have liked to have
0: seen murdered at an after-party don't come anymore. Well, that's going to do it for us this week. Thank you for listening. Why do we fall, Bruce? so we can learn to pick ourselves up. Next week, we are finally discussing a franchise I've held back on the show for a long time, but I'm gifting to myself as a birthday present. We start our discussions on the Dark Knight trilogy with Batman Begins from 2005. Written and directed by Christopher Nolan, co-written by David Esquire, score by Hans Zimmer and James Newton Howard, starring Christian Bale, Michael Caine, Liam Neeson, Katie Holmes, Gary Oldman, Killian Murphy, and Morgan Freeman. You won't want to miss that one, so watch ahead of the show by searching the Real Good app to find where it's streaming for you. That's R-E-E-L-G-O-O-D. Please like, follow, rate, and review, or whatever on whichever platform you have so that more can join in on our fun. You can also email the show at the new com or sign up for our newsletter. Find our new Facebook page under Greatest Movie of All Time Podcast, or find us on Instagram, Twitter, or TikTok at the handle at podcast.